And we're off. Ooh, I'm still a little high. You know what? I'm a little high. What are you going to do? Hi, everyone. Not that kind of high. A different kind of high. Hi, everyone. Let's put this down a little bit if I can. Hang on. Ooh, Jesus. Let's put this down a little bit. That's better. Hi, everyone. Yeah, my head's a little bit cut off today. I can't get any shorter, so I'll just scoot in my seat. How are you doing? My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 135 of my live chat. Today is the 13th of October, 2022. How are you? How are you? Um, let's see. You guys know the drill. I go for about an hour and a half total. I go for an hour with questions that you put up. I put up a thread on the day before, on Wednesday, on the community tab right here at youtube.com slash Luke Thomas. You guys fill it up. And then I react to it. You can see the questions, I believe, here, just like this. I'll do it like that so you can see it. So here are the questions that we get to. Uh, but for right now, it's just me jabbering at you. I hope all is well. Um, let's see. Uh, if you put in a donation, I will get to your question at the end. We'll put your question on the screen here. So if that's something you're interested in, you can do that. If not, enjoy it for free. That's cool, too. No problem. Uh, no pressure. All right. Um, let's see. Oh, I have a couple corrections to get to from last week. I want to start doing those a little bit more. I think it's important to, when you get things wrong, to talk about it with your audience, especially if it's matter of fact and not just an opinion difference. So without further ado, let's get this party. Where is it? Here we go. Let's get this party started. There we go. Sorry, almost hit it twice. All right, today on the docket, I wanted to lean into UFC 280. Um, working on something uh, for you guys. The goal is to get it out on Sunday morning. Oh, is there a big-ass hair on me right there? Yeah, there is. I had to bring my dog in. Um, wanted to get it out for you on, I think it's still there, flapping in the effing breeze. Is it not? Did I get it? Yes, I did get it, I think. I think. Sorry about that. I have a very hairy, uh, fluffy dog. All right, um, so I'm working on a big 280 preview piece. Actually, a couple of them, I think. Certainly one, and the goal is to get that up on Sunday morning for you guys. So I've been watching a lot of tape, making a lot of notes, getting the presentation ready. I'm going to record the presentation tomorrow. Um, so it gives me plenty of time to get it up and get it edited for you. But I thought this was a fun time to start leaning into 280 because that card is sensational. I, we actually had Chuck Mindenhall in studio yesterday for MK. And uh, I don't want to spoil it, but he brought up a stat that he saw that I had never seen about how good that card is. That'll really fucking blow your mind. Not that you need to see that stat to know that 280 is great. You guys all know 280 is great. But um, it's just such a phenomenal card. I would like to spend actually as much time as I can between now and then leaning into some of those things. In fact, I know you guys have asked me a lot about Islam and Oliveira and how they match up I finally have got some pieces of that puzzle together um, now that I've had a chance to sort of make some notes and put together some thoughts that I have so hoping you guys got some questions about that if not though we'll get to whatever else you guys have on your mind uh can be about 280 can be about this weekend can be about everyone saying really stupid shit about boxing whatever you want to get to we can do that okay so thumbs up on the video hit subscribe all that fun stuff. If you're listening on your favorite podcast platform, leave me a nice review. That'd be very nice of you if you would be so kind. Okay. With that in mind, let's get to... Oh, the corrections. There's at least two of them that I know about that I have to get to. First, I had mentioned last week, someone was asking about Bo Nichols' collegiate wrestling um, accolades. 
And I had mentioned that Colby Covington was a multiple-time All-American. I think he was just a one-time All-American. Also, I had stated that Matt Hughes had wrestled for Illinois. Not quite, actually. He is from Illinois, um, but or at least he had spent significant time in Illinois anyway. But um, he wrestled for Eastern Illinois, which is a different university. So there's Eastern Michigan. There's University of Michigan. There's all different kinds of uh, universities inside a, a state rest or I should say a state scholastic system. But, um, okay. So those are at least two things that needed to be updated. I'm sure there might be some more, but I want to be better about getting those things wrong. By the way, if I get something wrong or just you have feedback for me, Luke Thomas news at gmail.com. All right. So there's been about seven minutes uh, of non questions of me just rambling. So I will go to about four Oh seven or so with your free questions with that in mind. Let's get to it. All right. You know what? Let me blow this up just a little bit more. There we go. All right. Um, what single piece of content that you've produced? So an interview, podcast, article, etc. Are you most proud of? Jesus. Um, <laughs> that's an interesting question. I don't know. Um, a single interview, podcast, article, or whatever. Uh, I did an interview with Scott Coker before, I think, Kimbo versus Shamrock at the time, uh, where he was still very new into his tenure in Bellator. That was well-received. Um, that would be one. Obviously, I will tell you what, I'm pretty happy with any of the breakdowns on Max Holloway, on on Izzy, on um, even Fury. I've done some, boxings on, or, uh, some boxing breakdowns on Tyson Fury that have been well-received. I'm I'm pretty happy with those. I will tell you that I don't know if there's any individual one that really kind of stands out to me in part because it's really hard to do long projects like that. Like Chuck Mendenhall obviously has several pieces. Sean Alshadi too, like, you know, the night that everyone fought Aldo or the night we fought Aldo, the night we fought Bisping. And he's got these amazing sort of oral history retrospectives. Or as we talked to, talked about with Chuck Mendenhall, he had the In, In Search of Strange Brew piece from his days at, at uh, MMA fighting, but I wasn't in one of those roles. If you're in, if you were serving on a major MMA website, anywhere from 2010 to 2020, even now, what you're largely doing is just trying to pump out as much content as possible. It's very, very difficult to, um, you know, curate something that you can really fine tune. There's always these deadlines to get content up. So get your predictions up, get your, you know, whatever, whatever has to happen. There's always this constant push. Um, in terms of interviews, what have I done that I've been pretty happy with? Um, God, man, I've done a lot. I, I, you know what? I will just tell you that I'm the most, the thing that I look back on at this point of my career, um, that I'm most proud about. I'm really proud that of the radio show that we did at Sirius XM. I'm proud that I've been able to maintain the live chat. I don't, you know, I don't have grand designs for the live chat, but the fact that I've been able to continue to do it um, for 10 years has been more than I ever thought possible, uh, especially since it's been whatever you and I make of it. That's all That's all it, it, it was ever designed to be. And I think that that has vastly exceeded my expectations overall. Um, and I'm proud of like what we're building over at MK. I, I tend to take a longer view about these projects that I'm building versus individual pieces of content. If you've got one that you like, that's great. If not, I, I don't know that I could name one either. Um, I'd really have to go back. I've been doing this a long time. So I'd really have to sit there and think about it. I, nothing stands out at the top of my head. Um, 
you know, some things I'm more proud of than others, certainly. But um, the most fun I've ever had is, let me think about that. The most fun I've ever had is in doing a breakdown, right? Or a really fun interview. Um, yeah, that's really about it. Uh, most of the time it's, it's, you know, you're just, uh, you're just trying to beat the deadlines to be quite candid with you. So, um, if that is a knock on my career, then, uh, I would be the first to acknowledge it. All right. I know that I wish there was a more satisfying answer for you, but uh, to be just as honest as I can be, I'm more proud of like these larger efforts I'm trying to build. I was trying to build something at SiriusXM before I switched. I'm trying to build something now at MK. These are the things that um, I care about the most. Individual pieces of content certainly matter, but because they're so ephemeral in nature, they're they're difficult to get heavily invested in. And by the way, I am tired as balls. Had to get up at 4.30 yesterday, which is no, no, you know, difficult feat, but I did it. Car ride to the train station, three-hour train ride, another 45-minute car ride just to get to the studio, then did two hours of MK, then did in like an hour, not quite, maybe like 40 minutes, 45 minutes of ad reads, then had to do an episode of Dissected. This episode, I had to re-record it due to a variety of different complications. This was the third time I had to do the exact same presentation. And then we did uh, an hour and a half almost of UFC 280 stuff with Chuck. And then I had to take another 45-minute car ride back to the train station only to discover my train was delayed. And then wait, I had to wait like another hour for it uh, beyond what I was already going to wait anyway. And then another three-hour train ride, and then another car ride home. I don't think I got home till well past midnight, so I didn't make it home on the same day. And then I had to get up with my kid this morning at uh, six forty-five. So normally I don't get any great sleep anyway. This was this was uniquely bad. I, you know, sitting around is not tiring, but the uh, I've been taking the train a lot recently. I've been having flashbacks of twenty nineteen where my life was miserable. It's not that fun taking a train all that much. Got to be honest, at least in the amount that I do it. All right. Who gives a shit? Let's go. What is it about Sterling's game that allows him to find the back hold position and finish more consistently than most other fighters? His takedown accuracy is around 20%, but he's so efficient once he initiates contact. Is there more to this one? No, I think that's it. That's a great question. So. Here's the best answer I can come up with at the present moment. If we looked at, let's say, the Sanhagen fight, if we looked at the second Yan fight, I would have to go back and look at some other ones to be a little bit more sure. But uh, And there's more than this. But one of the things that Sterling does so well is that he is the master of the single leg. And I don't mean that he uses the single leg necessarily to finish, that's not quite true, but he uses the gripping of one leg to force the balancing on the other leg as a means to set up some sort of attack. Let me give you an example. The first takedown that he gets on Jan, I believe it's round two. I'm not sure what the timestamp would be, but it's round two. What he ends up doing is he ends up um, 
he might have he might have caught a kick on that one, but at a bare minimum, he is able to grab one of the legs, I believe the right leg, memory serves of Jan. And then from there, what he does is he uses that or to run into a knee tap, right? And what you see Jan do is resist the knee tap by turning away and trying to pump his leg out, which is which is what you want to do. Like what Jan was doing um, was largely correct, but he wasn't able to fully execute it because it turns out that uh, Sterling has a good grip with, and I don't just mean with his hands, but sometimes he has this sort of like overhook pull over it and he couldn't get away. And so what does that do? You see Sterling kind of pull up on it. It forces Jan to his hands. If you're forced to your hands and your base is under you, that means you have created back exposure and he's able to take it. And he, sometimes he can take it um, just because it's sitting there right in the open. There's other ways he can get it. But the point I'm trying to make here is he either can catch kicks, he can either attempt a single leg, he can grab a single leg and hold it and then use it to turn. But I want to go back to this. This is something I talk about all the time. The Nurmagomedovs are really big on if you grab a single leg, you can't just hold it and try and like turn them or whatever. Turning is good, obviously, but by itself insufficient. you got to get them moving because it forces them to balance on one leg. And that's very, very difficult to do. It's very difficult to punch. It's very difficult to get everything you need if they're constantly having to worry about their balance. And so one thing you end up seeing is by him grabbing the single leg, it A, allows him to use one leg and then another free hand either to punch, to post, to pull if he has to. He can do a lot of lot other things with that leg. And that means he can run them in different directions. He can go back and forth. He can just use lots of different planes of movement to disrupt the uh, balance, essentially, of Jan. That's a big part of it. Another one he had in that Jan fight was he had another kick. I can't remember if he grabbed it or if he caught it. And what he does is, this is this one was clever. This one was very clever. What do you guys know that most fighters are looking for when they get someone's back to the fence if they are looking for a double leg takedown? What they're looking to get is their hands clasped together. And they can do it with this grip. They can do it with a gable grip. They can do all different kinds of grips, right? There's different ones you can use, right? Uh, these are the two most common ones. You might hear, hear this call. Some people call it an S grip. I've heard it was taught to me as a C grip. Again, here's your gable grip. You can switch it either way where it goes over the thumbs, right? Either one of those. Sometimes you can just grab right behind the knees and pull. But assuming that we want the hands to be connected, Right, that's what you want. You want this grip. You want this grip. The hands are coming together, right? It's very difficult to do, though, because guys will turn their base to the side. They'll split their stance, right? They'll have a whizzer. It's just very, very difficult. They'll control the far side hand. It's, it's difficult to do. Sterling did something very, very clever. Very clever. What he ends up doing is he grabs a single leg and then runs... Um, either or caught a kick or grabbed the single. Either way, he is able to capture a leg. He runs Jan back into the fence. Now think about something. If I have one of your legs and you have to balance on the spare leg, what is your posture going to be like? You might be leaning over. I don't mean that, but I mean your leg. Your leg is going to be right underneath you. You need it to be for balance. You're not going to have your leg far outside if I have the other one. It just won't work, right? That, that's not going to make any sense. If I have both my feet on the ground, then I can split it apart. I can turn to the side. I can split my base. But if I have just one leg under me, I've got to keep it quite literally right under me. Well, that gives Sterling half of what he's looking for. He's got one leg right under him. He doesn't have to go all the way around to the back of the other side if that stance is split. 
or staggered, however they want to call it. So what he does is he has the single, the other leg's already there. He goes behind the post leg that's right underneath him. And then with the other leg, he just kind of brings it down. But Sterling has already stopped the straight leg from being able to split or post. So and then just sliding it down, he's able to just connect his hands right away. And then he scoops Sterling off the, or he scoops, excuse me, Jan off the fence and drops him straight down. That is clever. That is clever. That is clever, clever, clever. I'm going to make you give me a straight leg. I'm going to block it and then slowly release the the grip on the other one so I can bring it straight down to the knee together and then hold these ones, hold my hands or whatever the grip was. I don't remember if it was C grip or something else, right? That's clever. That's clever as shit. That was like, I saw that and I was like, that is good. That's really good. So here we have him using a single leg to uh, attempt a knee tap. The guy tries to escape. Uh, Sterling assists it by forcing it to the hands. He goes to the back. Another one is he can run him back. I saw another one where he went for a double, tries to run it, and then you see Jan post on the leg where it's being run to to stop it. Sterling abandons the takedown immediately, uses his head to force Jan behind him, and then just goes right to the back. Just goes right to the back. That's it. Goes right to the back. Um, against Sanhagen, what did he do? Now, that was more of a traditional double, but he presses him against the fence. He has a, a heavy underhook, which he uses to force Sandhagen over. And then he grabbed the far side wrist. So if I pull that wrist, and okay, so if I pull Sand, if I'm Sterling and I pull Sandhagen's left wrist right across me and I have the right side underhook, what's going to happen? I'm going to turn his shoulders to the mat, which is exactly what happens. But Sterling, excuse me. Sanhagen doesn't want that to happen, so he scrambles. So he lets go of the wizard. Well, why do you need the wizard? Again, a wizard is an overhook of an underhook. Why would you need the wizard? The wizard is what's preventing Sterling from going to the back. So he has to give that up. Sterling makes him get, make a choice here. One, I'm either going to turn your shoulders to the mat, or you can recapture your base, and then I'm just going to take your back. Either way. And there he does it. Just like that. So what I have found is what he is looking for is sometimes he's looking to take advantage of defense to takedowns. Sometimes he's got his own clever sort of setup for takedowns. A lot of it, a lot of it, a lot of it is initiated off the single leg itself. Now, and talk and taking and taking the back, partly he has a good frame for it. He's got he's sort of lanky in that way, but still muscular. So I'm told his squeeze is quite absurd. Um, he does something that you see a guy like Charles Oliveira do, right? What did Charles Oliveira do? Punches Justin Gaethje, right? Floors him. Gaethje flies back and then wants to sit up. So he's sitting up, meaning he's got, he's creating back exposure this way. What did you see Oliveira do? Oliveira steps in front of him, in front of his left hip. He steps right. Imagine I'm sitting, which I am obviously, but I mean like on the floor, my feet are out in front of me. And imagine someone comes over and steps right between my legs, covering my left hip, and then sits down and then puts the hook in on the other side, right? If you are giving them a structure by which to plant and then turn and grip, that's essentially what has happened here. Sterling does the exact same thing to Jan. Now, he doesn't drop him with a punch, but there's a takedown where he's trying to get away and he scrambles. And what you see Sterling do is plant the right foot right in front of him, which by the way, stops forward movement in that direction, and then he's able to grab the body, the 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 back from there. The right hook goes in first, then the left, um, and then he puts on the body triangle and then just holds from there. You know, because he's got strong grip, he's got 
he's 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 got probably great endurance in that position. Um, and there was another one too, I think, on Jan where he was able to not put the right hook in first, but uh, the oh, the one where he was able to post over and get to the back. And what are you looking to do? You're looking. Uh, Danaher describes it this way: you're looking to get past their elbows. You don't necessarily have to get past their elbows to get an advantageous angle, but if you can get outside your opponent's elbows, which is what he does, right? It, that's where, for example, with Sandhagen, when Sandhagen gives up the wizard, what are you giving up? Well, yes, that's the blocking mechanism to the back, but just think about it. Now, Sterling is outside his elbows. That's what he's able to do against Jan. He goes for the double, Jan plants. He then fires the head over, right? And so he gets Jan's defenses behind him, essentially, or I should say to the side of him. And then from there, he is now past Jan's elbows. He can go right to the back. So it's a lot of getting past elbows. It's a lot of single leg attacks. It's a lot of not traditional passing. He uh, he doesn't try to put you flat on your back and then go from guard to side, side to uh, or I say guard to half guard, half guard to side, side to mount. He can go deftly between mount and the back, back in the mount, and then can alternate position from there. But he is looking for shortcuts based on back exposure, base scrambles, wrestling defenses. These are all the little shortcuts he takes to dominant positions from which he can hold. Dude, he's a fucking amazing grappler. You know, I really regret how much I have slept on him the last few years. I've been really wrong about that. I, I put him number two, I think, on my list of favorite grappler, grapplers more recently because in the tape study, I was like, Jesus, I have really, I have really uh, just been wrong very much about him. And listen, he did have some setbacks. He had the setback badly against Marais. The guy lost to Brian Caraway back in the day, but who he is now, who he is now he is he's good he's real good <laughs> and his grappling is very very he and Oliveira have you know they're different obviously in a lot of different ways but they they share some real similarities uh, I would just say the big difference is um Sterling initiates scrambles through wrestling a little bit more than Oliveira for sure among other differences obviously so there you go all right Luke, I was just wondering how you see Bilal versus Brady playing out and what, if anything, you see Muhammad bringing to the game that Sean's previous opponents have not have not done sufficient tape study for this. I could give you a bullshit answer here, but I'm not really not gonna. Um, but I'm going to look into this. This is... Uh, I have found that if I just give you analysis strictly from memory, I often find that I regret it. So I would rather just punt on this one for a little bit and then stick to what I've done more recent homework on. But um, it's, a, it's a perfectly good question for sure. All right, Luke, in regards to Oliver and Makachev, would you consider making a pair of videos similar to the ones you have made for Habib and Gaethje fight where you analyze the threats that the fighters pose to one another? Yes. Yes, I would. Working on something for you. Okay. I think you will like it. I think you will like it. Uh, all right. Charles's wrestling coach has said Islam won't even be able to take Charles down, much less control him on the ground. Charles, I doubt that very much. Charles has also said he expects a round one KO. I don't care about that. It sounds like Charles's plans to come out aggressive, put on the pressure, and keep the fight on the feet. Islam has said the plans to take him down, make him tired, and make him tap. Uh, guys, people say lots of things before fights that end up just being total bullshit. Um, I would be very surprised if Islam can't get him down. Now, if Charles comes out and what's, what's one of 
Charles's favorite distance closing techniques slash one of his techniques to get someone to back up close to the fence. What's one of his favorite techniques? It's the jumping switch knee. He does it all the time, right? Not in every fight, but he does it frequently. Okay, and the tape is very clear about that. Could he come out and, you know, not knock out Islam that way, but rock him badly and then polish him off as a guy stumbles around and can't get the takedown because he's, you know, rocked or something? Yes. But do I really believe that Islam can't get Charles down? Charles's takedown defense is good. It's not great. It's not great. There's a takedown threat. I should say there's a um, there's a strong guillotine threat from there, um, certainly. And by the way, his guillotines don't really come from his back. They come from standing, and then he pulls into guard to finish it. So that makes him very different. Uh, not very different, but that makes – just to be clear, he's not a guy from guard doing a lot of submissions. In fact, I looked this up. He's only got two submissions where the finish of the submission from guard was initiated from guard. In other words, he didn't start with locking up a you know a darse on the or whatever, locking up a guillotine on the feet, and then jumping into guard. That's not finish. I mean, that, yes, that's finishing from guard, but that's not really using your guard for submission in the same way that I'm talking about, and in particular your legs, right? Um, if we're talking about that, he has just two Elkins and Ogle. That's it. When I say using your legs, obviously you use your legs in the guard with a choke, no matter what. But, I mean, we're talking about triangle chokes where the actual legs are doing the strangulation, that kind of a thing, or um, potentially an omoplata or something like that. So the idea that, um, yes, does it make sense to potentially put pressure on Islam? Um, Because what you actually want is to force him to take you down because you think you might have a submission advantage there. That might be something. Guys, it's not to say, like, yeah, I know there are times where fighters or coaches will tell you exactly what they want to do, and then after the fight, you're like, whoa, look at what they said, and blah, blah, blah. There's, you can draw a straight line to the to the finish. But more often than not, the stuff they say pre-fight is nonsense or, you know, just some delusional version of what they've told themselves the fight is going to be. Islam could get knocked out in the first. Islam could tap him out in the third. These are not utterly implausible things. I'm just trying to point out to you, like, repeating to me what a coach or fighter said they're going to do in a fight boy if i had a dollar for every time a guy took a massive l after assuring me and the public that this one was going to be you know a triumphant evening for them i wouldn't have to do this anymore i could just retire off the vast fortune i had amassed to this point so always be very 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 careful i do think that islam is going to try and slow things down and to slowly pull, imagine a grenade only, it only has one pin, but imagine it had multiple pins, right? He's going to slowly start, like the Jenga piece, slowly start pulling them out over time. I don't think he's trying to rush a finish. I'll take one if there is one. Don't think he's trying to rush it. Uh-oh. Violetta's home. All right. Let's see. Uh, you've mentioned how wild fighters need to retain a part of their fighting identity when they switch to a measured style. You've also mentioned that if Yuri switches to a more measured approach, parts of his game would come to life. Could you elaborate on the potential of a more measured uh, Yuri might have? Yeah, I mean, dude, he takes a lot of fucking damage. It would be very hard for me to believe he couldn't incorporate a more defensive, not mindset, but... Um, guardrails around his game about when he wants to throw in what conditions he wants to throw 
what types of weapons to use in clinch scenarios, um, when to scramble and what ways you want to scramble. But, but first things first, just closing distance to get something going, you would want him to use feints and creativity, but you would want to be more selective about when you go. You would want to be more selective about timing. You would want, he just seems to like have not much consideration for some of these other factors. He just bulldozes his way in and he's got a really good chin. That won't last. That won't last. Like, why does his style work? Everyone's like, oh, his style is not supposed to work, and it does. Right, but why? Why? Well, for a lot of reasons. He's strong as a fucking bull, but the other part is he takes a shitload of damage and just eats it. That will not last. That If he keeps doing that, that, that capacity for absorbing damage will go away or certainly be reduced. And now where are you? You haven't updated your game to these more inevitable declines that are, there's nothing you can do about those. They are inexorable so what i would suggest is for him he likes to be creative excuse me he likes to be creative he likes to have unusual timing you can retain that but simply be more selective about when you go you can reduce some of his overall volume i would think like you know there's no such thing as a free lunch so you might have to reduce some of his offensive potency but if you can dramatically improve the amount of defense that he has that's overall a net win I just don't think he can afford to be as wild and crazy as he has been going forward. I don't know if it will cost him in the next fight or the one after that, but for sure, the human body has a finite capacity for damage. And the more you pull from that, the more it will just fuck you up. Like you, you can't get away with it for very long. Uh, there's a lot of guys who have built styles in their 30s based off of an assumption about their ability to absorb damage or their speed or their reflexes. And then as soon as that goes, their game falls apart because they didn't, they didn't future proof it. You know, if he wants to just fight until the wheels fall off and then just call it a day, you can do that too. But if you would like to fight past the point where, um, you know, or, or to fight longer, I think we'll see how much more successful it is, but you know, to scale this in a healthier way long term, he could certainly do that without sacrificing too much on the front end of the offense. Um, Luke, not a question, but a thing that made me laugh when BC asked you about getting a prostate exam on camera. Your response was great. Okay, thank you. Good question. <clears throat> Luke, why do you think the UFC is opposed to creating 165 and 175 pound divisions? I struggle to find any significant reason against it. Um, UFC is all about belts and go all out to make fights seem more significant with interim belts, and this naturally creates a new one. Currently, both 155 and 170 are loaded with talented fighters, and a new division will allow us to see more good fights among them. The argument that this will somehow destroy 155 and 170, excuse me, seems ridiculous to me. There are more than enough good fighters to fill an extra division. This will just spread the talent around a little bit. Oh, and there is even more potential for super fights between champions in two divisions, which should also appeal to UFC. There are also obvious health benefits for guys that struggle to make 170 or 155. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think there's a good case. I did this before. There's a video on this channel. You can look it up. It's called the, um, I, so I had a, my old 
producer, Mike Russo, and I on the my old Series XM show, we took all the guys at 155, we took all the guys at 170, and what we did was we treated it like a two-team league, and we drafted players, fighters. So he would pick someone to go to 165, I would pick someone. He would pick someone, I would pick someone. And then we would have 155, 165, and 175. And this was several years ago at this point. And what we found at the time was that this is even truer now, but what we found at the time was that you could very much make a 165-pound division, but that would have to be a little bit of oversight from the promoter about how many people are there and who can go in and who can get out. You know, it would it wouldn't it, you could do it. You could absolutely do it. There's no no denying it, but it would have to be a carefully managed process. I, I think we're actually far past that at this point. The reason why they don't want to do it, and the, by the way, you, you mentioned it like, like, oh, we're trying to do everything for weight cutting. I'm like, everything? You know, if you were doing everything, you would just have weight classes seven pounds apart. People would still cut weight in unhealthy ways in a lot of different attempts to make the lowest that they could. That that by itself doesn't solve it, but it does give you more options for healthier places to compete. But this gets to sort of one of the problems with the boxing model. It's not that there aren't fair criticisms to make of boxing. It's just that people are too stupid to commonly make them. One of them that you could make is that it's hard for the public to figure out who's a champion in a weight class, who matters. There's too many belts and there's too many weight classes. Um, I think the UFC is somewhat rightly fearful of that. They are fearful of the idea that if we go down this path and keep adding weight classes and keep adding weight classes, especially when you have them all the way apart. So 25, 35, 45, 55, 65, 75, 85, 205, and then essentially heavyweight, that what will happen is we'll start getting to what we have in boxing, super middleweight. So there's middleweight 160, then there's super middleweight 168, basically. And then, you know, goes on from there, right? Welterweight, light welterweight, junior middleweight, and these are all kind of the same. And by the way, that's the other problem too. Uh, super welterweight is the same name for junior middleweight. Junior middleweight being 154, super welter would be that one. So there's all these problems about the, the there's all these weight classes. There's multiple belts in each weight class. There's interim belts in each weight class. And is that really a path that we want to go down? Your point might be, and I would agree, well, 165, 175 doesn't 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 feel like that's the bridge that gets us there. But I think the UFC likes what they have. They like what they have. If we can get guys better about weight cutting, we can do these early morning weigh-ins. We have the PI. We don't have too many belts. We don't have too many champions. We have a very, in large part, compact, sellable product to the audience. Because if you, what you were really trying to do was be like, hey, we can add another weight class, and this can all balance out pretty nicely. There's some weight cutting benefits. To your point, you can do super fights. Th these are great arguments. I agree with just about everything you wrote. I think the UFC is very scared of going down one of the arguments, I think, or one of the places that boxing has gone that has not necessarily done itself a lot of favors as a consumer product, as a place where you have, you know, there's less weight cutting as a problem in boxing. I would submit to you guys, cut less weight. Um, so, you know, they don't have some of those issues, but they have a lot of other issues on the other side. You know, I think they're worried about that, quite rightly. Or at least, or at least I, fairly is what I would say. They're fairly worried about it. Someone asking if we're going to get a rooftop with Chuck. Stay tuned. Um, here we go. 
Do you think Islam is facing a much tougher signature fight to become the top guy in the division than Habib did? Habib won against Ayaquinta, but it seems like the tougher fight to establish legitimacy was UFC 229 against a returning champion in Conor McGregor. Man, I didn't see it that way. Oliveira just seems like uh, such a bigger task to overcome technically than either guy Habib beat. Now, let me do a little thing here. Let me pull up old Islam's. He fought Bobby Green in his last contest, which, if uh, memory serves, he was not supposed to. Yeah, supposed to be Benil Dariush. Dariush, as it currently stands, is sitting in the rankings position of number six. Now, it's funny. He does have, if you're Ola, excuse me, if you're Makachev, you have wins over Jesus. Saryukian at 10. And that's it in terms of top 10 guys. Man. Yeah. So the idea was to get him Dariush, but Dariush got, he fell out. So he had to fight Bobby Green on short notice and Islam blew past him like it was nothing. But that was the issue. That's what, that's what they were trying to do. That's what they were trying to get. I don't think the UFC designed it this way where they were trying to be like, oh, well, this is the signature win. I, I think in a perfect world, and they tried, they would have given him a sufficient test inside the top 10 slash top five had the stars aligned themselves in the way that they had. And remember, he was supposed to fight RDA, and then he pulled out of that one because it was all last-minute weirdness. But it just didn't seem to be in a place where that was more easily going to happen. And so they're going to Abu Dhabi, which they might have some contract about how many fights they have to bring there every year. Um, you know, you've got a celebrated uh a Muslim athlete, which is going to be important for that part of the world, who is also, you know, a very, very good one. Um, not just celebrated, but talented. Had, you know, hard to say he's worked his way through the ranks in the traditional sense, but has clearly shown, at least on tape, flashes of ability that make you think he could do something very special in this division. And again, in his last two fights against Hooker and um, Green, they couldn't last around with him, you know. So he's really showing you that. There are reasons to believe in his upside, but of course, you know, what's the toughest fight for him outside of this one? It'd be Saryukian or Moises. That's it. Um, and neither of those guys I'd put on, you know, I have high ab opinion about Saryukian, but he's got a lot of stuff to work on. Oliveira is just a much more dangerous threat. This is a massive, massive step up from anything that Islam has faced. But I don't think you're like, is he facing a much tougher signature fight to become the top guy in the division? Um, oh, sorry. Do you sorry? I, I had interpreted it as you were as you were suggesting did the UFC match make it this way? Forgive me. You're asking, do you think Islam is facing a much tougher signature fight to become the tough uh, top guy in the division? That do I think this is a tougher fight than Habib has ever had? You know, Poirier is a tough guy. I realize that you know he lost to um, and Gage is a tough guy. Both guys who also lost to Oliveira. Yeah, probably, probably, probably is. Mm -hmm. I think that that's probably a tougher fight than anything that Habib had to face. Although, you know, Habib was one of the first to show that some of these guys were way more mortal than we realized, you know. Uh, let's go back to this one. Luke, if the UFC abandoned weight cutting, wouldn't there still be heavier guys who would continue to do it so they could rehydrate on fight night and be 20 pounds heavier than their opponent? What do you mean abandoning weight cutting? How do you abandon weight cutting? Weight cutting is sweating. It's it's purposeful sweating. 
but it's sweating just the same. Um, how do you abandon if you if you're like how do you abandon that practice? I don't understand how that would work. I guess I'd have to have a clear sense of what you're describing. Abandoning weight cutting, meaning like you do something like what one is doing, but that's not an abandonment of weight cutting. That's just a different way of sleight of hand. It's not an abandonment of it. So I don't know how to answer that question. All right. Back to the questions. If Oliveira were to beat Islam and maybe get one to two more defenses, at what point would he be in the upper room conversation for greatest of all time? Given the records he already has and others that are within reach, it feels like we still don't talk about Charles in a historical sense. If those early UFC losses happened outside of the organization, I don't think people would hold it against him the way they still do. Right, but they're not outside. Um, he is going to have a very difficult conversation being in that upper region of best all time because it's the same region, reason Couture is not in that space. Couture was bouncing back and forth from light heavyweight to heavyweight, winning titles here, losing it, winning titles here, losing it, back and forth, back and forth, you know. He 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 stayed on top of the game in the most unique and amazing of ways. There can be no denying it. Just a truly remarkable run he had in his career, but it was always peppered with setbacks in between. Losses that forced him to go from one weight class to the next or a different organization or whatever the case was at that particular stage of his career. Um, but that has kept him out of the conversation. When we talk about the Mount Rushmore of MMA, we don't put Couture in there. For a very particular reason, it's because, you know, he has not just a lot of losses. He had a lot of losses in the prime of his career. Now you could say, well, Oliveira's in the prime of his career now because he's 32. Fine. But if he's 32, he lost to Felder five years ago, roughly. So he'd be 27 at that point. Um, you know, let's, let's pull this up here. Here's his wiki for whatever that is worth again let's blow it up a little bit all right so this run that you're talking about here hold on let me let me uh let's try this one yeah okay so i'll blow it up a little bit more oops all right so this run gaethje poirier chandler ferguson lee gordon lentz tamer miller giagos and guida this is his renaissance period right here this is the best he's ever looked by a million miles, okay? And I do think this is the prime of his career, which is why he's looked the way he's looked. But we have a substantial number of setbacks here. He got finished by Paul Felder. He got finished by Ricardo Lamas. He got finished by Pettis. Uh, he got stopped in a weird-ass fight with Max Holloway. He got decisioned by Frankie. He got knocked out by Cub. He got finished by Donald Cerrone. Weird fight with Nick Lentz. He got submitted by Jim Miller. And then the one, uh, I guess that's his first loss. He doesn't just have losses. He's got losses that where he got finished. In fact, of all of his losses, how many are a, a, a decision? Just one. Just one. So you mean to tell me a guy's, right? Yeah. So he's got, okay, first loss is Miller, finished. Second loss, Cerrone, finished. Swanson, finished. Edgar, there's your decision. Holloway, finished. Pettis, finished. Lamas, finished. Felder, finished. Guys, if you've been finished in seven of your eight losses, your claim to all-time greatness is a little bit minimized. You, you just can't do that. And, and, and claim, you know, 
I belong in the pantheon of best MMA fighters ever. Part of being the best MMA fighter ever is not necessarily invincibility, although Habib has a unblemished record. But of course, you know, did he fight all the very best and blah blah blah. But the point is, with the time that you had, like, to what degree is there a, is there dominance over your opponents or resistance to like how, how minimal are the losses? Did you avenge them? Right. For example, Whitaker has that loss. Here, let me put this on here. Whitaker has a loss to Izzy, but in the second fight, took him to a decision, so he's able to close the gap, obviously, right? You know, there's not so much revenge in that sense, but there's clearly a difference between them. Now, maybe if he had some rematches to some of these guys, but, you know, Felder, retired, Lamas, uh, I think retired as well, Pettis, PFL, Holloway, still there, still there. Uh, Edgar, almost done. Swanson fights this weekend, Cerrone done. And then Jim Miller kind of still around, but in a very different place. So, yes, there's obviously – it's all part of the story. Did he fight these guys much earlier and hit to his tenure relative to what we saw his prime ability end up being? Yes, but he also got waxed, you know, the vast majority of the times that he did lose. Like, it wasn't even hardly comp- – it wasn't like he's got five split decisions or something. So, the fact that he was finished off in the way that he was with both submissions and TKO finishes or just outright chaos in the case of someone like Cub Swanson, it counts. I do think what you might be able to say is he returned to lightweight against Will Brooks. He beat him. Okay. Uh, now, the Lamas fight was 155 because he missed weight, but that was, you know, bad weight cut. I mean, like a, a real return to the weight class. He beats Will Brooks. He loses to Paul Felder. Fine. But since he goes to 155 and since his skill set matured, here you have this. So one, what you can talk about is, let's see if he beats Islam. Does he have an all-time great winning streak? Does he have an all-time great winning streak at lightweight? That's one you could talk about. To your point, if he beats Islam and then gets two more defenses, let's say uh, against Michael Chandler or Poirier a second time, and then, I don't know, let's say Dariush or Gamrot, somebody like, you know, ready to go, and he gets two of those or something. Well, then you could start talking about who's been who's who was the best lightweight ever. Now that's also going to be a difficult conversation because of the undefeated record of Habib. So then you could make it a little bit more forceful. Who has the best record of lightweight wins inside the UFC? And if you want to frame it in that way, and to your point, if Oliveira keeps going, then he could be in that conversation. But would I really put him on the level of someone like we're talking about best ever? Even if he goes on the kind of run I just described, I'm, I just you cannot erase the losses. They don't go away. They are, they're still there. You have to, you know, contextualize them for what they mean and what they don't. But if you were soundly defeated for that long stretch of your career, that counts too. That counts too, you know. Um, but I do think that if he achieves in the way in which you described, there will be a way to assess it that will put him at a bare minimum, at a bare minimum in the pantheon of all-time lightweight greats which by the way is one of the hardest things to do in the sport so i i am fairly confident he will get his flowers but we have this tendency to want to focus in on someone's strengths if their strengths are really really impressive without any acknowledgement of the weaknesses the weaknesses count too they don't count necessarily all one-to-one but we cannot ignore it because of this all right let's get back to it Let's see. If Charles were to beat Islam, do you think it is more likely that he moves up in weight at an attempt at champ champ or stay and defend the next wave of lightweights? I would be surprised if he went to 170. I don't think his game would translate as well. Personally, I would love to see him defend versus Volk and then the next wave of 155ers. Agreed. 
but curious how you think Charles and the UFC would optimize it. Conversely, how do you think Charles does at 170? Yeah, I I don't think that he would do all that well at 170. I don't think he's physical enough for that weight class. I'm not saying he would go there and just get bombed on and murdered, but I'd, I I would be very surprised against a Rachmanov or Sean Brady or Bilal Muhammad or potentially even a Luke or it's just too it's to the guys are just too big and strong I want dude if you if you ever seen a 170 pounder not in camp in the wild I mean these dudes get up to 210 sometimes 215 or even 220 these are large motherfuckers man like <laughs> that's a very very difficult assignment for a guy who started his career at 145 that's a very and I know he had weight cutting issues down there but that's a very very difficult assignment now I actually hope he sticks around at 155, and the reason why is because I feel like there was a time when Connor was around in 2016 where we had this class of lightweights, and it was like your Poiriers, it was your Fergusons, it was your McGregors, it was your Habibs, guys are the Gaethje, right? All of that. I feel like that class of lightweights, they're about to graduate into the next stage of their career. Right, so Connor, if he comes back at all, probably will be at 170 for who knows how much longer. Habib is gone. Um, Chandler getting up there. He still has some time left, but not a whole lot. Poirier, I think, is in a roughly similar-ish position. Um, Ferguson, I think, is just about done. Right, the, we're, the, that class of top five guys. Nate was in there as well to a degree, sort of. Um, they're all aging out. They got Poirier and Chandler have some life left in them for sure, but they're aging out too. And there's this new groundswell of 155ers, your Ismogulovs, your Saryukians, Makachev to an extent part of that as well, and some other ones. And I think they're going to completely take over the top. And so if Oliveira is the champion, I would love to see how he matches up with them, your Gamrots. I, by the way, no one ever talks about him, but I think Guram Kutateladze is a phenomenal fighter. He gave Gamrot a hard-ass fight. Um, Saryukian, I think, is going to be there. By the way, he's got to get past Ismagulov, who's a fucking animal as well. Um, I think that that whole 2016 class, so to speak, of elite lightweights, they're on their way out, and this new one is coming up. So for that reason, whoever becomes the champion, I want to see how he faces off against all of those guys. And again, it's not automatic. I mean, it takes time for this for one generation to replace another, and it's never overnight, but I feel like that's happening. So to me, you know, 170 is kind of interesting, but I just think the physicality of those guys would fuck him up. But at 155, I think he is right now the best guy in the world. And if he can beat Islam, I would love to see how he does against, you know, some of these other heavy hitters on the rise up, especially if Gamrot gets past uh, Dariush on that same card. Who the hell knows? Who the hell knows? Right. Uh, great question. Let's get to it. We saw Sterling use a lot of lateral movement to keep Jan at a safe distance, and we saw Jan swinging and missing quite a bit in that fight. Could you see O'Malley beating Jan using a similar game plan? Yes. Yes, I could. I think it would be hard, not so much to land on Jan, but to land enough to put him away. That's a very difficult thing to do, but yes. The lateral movement from um, Sterling was a huge problem for a guy like uh Jan he just never had a stationary target he could bear down on very often 
it was a massive, massive challenge for him in that contest. And that also set up a lot of the punches and exits of Sterling. It would set up a lot of the teeps he would throw, the jabs he would throw. It set up, by the way, it set up one of his takedowns because one of the ways he would keep him off is the movement, 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 jab to the body, movement, 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 jab to the body, right? That kind of a thing. And then one, one of his takedowns, the one where he was able to use his head to get behind, he fakes like he's going to throw a punch to the body. You see Jan go like this and cover up and not move his legs. And Sterling goes penetration step right through and gets it and then was able to get to the back by forcing him over with it behind the head. All of these things feed together. All of them feed together. Um, so, yeah, so Jan does a lot of looking and then and then trying to process it and then reacting what he's going to have to do is narrow the options of a guy like Sean O'Malley. He's going to have to make sure that he that is constrained so he's not constantly playing catch up. Right? You got to make sure that guy is controlled, a more effective cage cutting would would be a part of that. I think leg kicking, the leg kicking to me is going to be the most interesting part about it. It always seems to be with Sean O'Malley, but because he's taking such a dramatic step up in the bantamweight division in terms of the ranking and difficulty of opponent and and by the way, the guy he's fighting, not like leg kicking is the only thing he can do, but he is a prolific leg kicker. That will be important to me to slow that down. Jan probably didn't want to leg kick Sterling too much because he didn't want to get his kick caught, right? And he did some leg kicking. Let's let's be you know honest about it. But he probably had to limit some of that by virtue of not wanting to walk into one of those traps. But against against O'Malley, I don't think Jan's going to have some of those same concerns. So, you know, there's a there's a benefit and a positive in either direction. A guy like O'Malley is very good about juking, right? He can fake this way and go that way, and you come here and he can exit if he wants, or he can make you move this way, and then he can drill you. On the other side, a guy like Jan, who has a, I, w- I, would, I would argue, is vastly better on the ground, is probably not going to be at all concerned necessarily about, he can scramble too, is not going to be necessarily that concerned about throwing leg kicks as a way to limit a guy's movement in either direction. So... There's a plus and a minus there. Okay. Good question. All right. I'm hoping the UFC 280 main event stays together. However, if it were up to you, which combination of fight involving the three would you prefer to see? Perhaps ranking in your preference. Okay. So this person writes, this person says that their preference would be one, Olivera Makachev, the originally scheduled one, two, Olivera Volkanovsky, okay, three, Makachev Volkanovsky. That is exactly how I would have it. And this person writes, I think Islam's style and size is too much for Volk. I much prefer Volk's chances against Olivera, but because I love grappling in the ground game, I prefer the mainstay. The main, excuse me, stay the way that it is. Yeah, I would largely agree with that. Volkanovski is now your uh, your official replacement, which is hilarious because Benil Dariush thought it was him, and lo and behold, it is not. I would hope that the main event is uninterrupted, but if it is interrupted, the Olivera Volkanovski fight seems more interesting to me. Volkanovski's speed, I think, would be an issue. His movement would be an issue. His in and out movement would be an issue. His fainting is probably the best or some of the best in the entire sport. Uh, he is strong for that weight class physically. And we, you know, we saw against Brian Ortega, he's got lights out submission defense, or I should say, I shouldn't say that. I would say very resilient submission defense, but Oliveira is also Oliveira, right? One of the best, well, overall, the very best submission guy ever in UFC history in terms of just what you can amass. 
and uh, obviously he can strike, and he has a phenomenal clinch as well. That is interesting. Makachev slowing the fight down, forcing it to being a wrestling contest, to me it just would not be as, it would be interesting to see what Volk could do, but I don't think it would produce as fan-friendly a fight. Oliveira would make Makachev have a more fan-friendly fight unless he is utterly overwhelmed, right? If if Oliveira is completely overwhelmed, I don't know how fan-friendly it will be. I mean, maybe if Makachev, like, brutalizes him or something but if he's able to just slow it down but lose that's going to be boring right but uh Volkanovsky versus Oliveira seems to me has the potential to be a little bit exciting Makachev if he is able to have a grappling advantage over Volkanovsky and able to close distance reasonably well that just seems like it could be a slow and important fight but methodically a little on the boring side so I have it exactly the way that you have it I would share your assessment Uh, I'm trying to find ones that have thumbs up. Here we go. Here's a great one. Let's go to it, shall we? Luke, you have talked about how a lot of BJJ fighters don't need the takedown to get into position for their sub attempts and can find that in scrambling exchanges. After rewatching Corey versus TJ, don't you feel like this fight favors Aljo quite a bit considering Corey managed to find success in scrambles to latch on to good submission attempts? I don't think Aljo will take him down with ease but he just needs to initiate scrambles. Yes, I will f- I'm will. i going to go ahead and tell you I'm of the belief that Aljamain Sterling will retain his title. Now, if he makes an error in the stand-up department, TJ can punch his lights out or, bare minimum, you know, hurt him enough to polish him off. Like, TJ can be quite clever in that way. But uh, what did you notice in the Sandhagen fight with TJ? How many times did you see Sandhagen catch the kick of a guy like Dillashaw? Quite a bit quite a bit and the kicking is a fairly central piece of the game of a guy like TJ Dillashaw so that automatically confers some advantage on Aljamain Sterling plus Sterling is quick Sterling is good about getting in and out of range good about managing distance and as I indicated one thing he just likes to do is grab the single force imbalance in some kind of way forcing you to your hands getting outside your elbows um, whatever it has to be, and then he can just take a dominant position and at, or forcing you to scramble, stepping in front, and then using the back exposure you created to take a dominant position. Once he gets to the back, he can negotiate between back and mount very ably, or he can go to mount and then back, as we've kind of discussed. I don't think a lot of guys in that division have an answer for it. Jan might have one of the better ones, and you saw what he was able to do with it. He had to just punt on rounds where once Sterling got to the back, that was it. That was it. So it's a tough one. I, 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 it's a tough assignment for TJ. TJ, I would argue, has to keep. Can TJ really win this fight uh, on the ground? I mean, obviously, can is the wrong way to describe it, but is it the likeliest path of victory for him? I would submit to you, it is very much not. And what kind of ability does TJ have to resist the takedown or the pressure or the imbalancing, whatever the method of um, gripping and or scramble initiation? Sterling chooses to implement. I, I, you know, I don't, I, that's a tough fight for old TJ Dillashaw. That's a tough fight. Very tough fight. Uh, and Styles make fights obviously on top of it, but um, that is, that is a tough one. That's a very tough one. 
Someone's asking what's in my uh, BJJ Fanatics library. Um, some Danaher stuff, some Gordon stuff. Not that much Gordon stuff, believe it or not, because they're so long. They're hard to get through. A lot of boxing stuff. A lot of uh, Lachlan Giles, half guard, 50-50 stuff. Um, a lot of a Bomac on the jab, which is not my favorite instructional, if I can be honest. I like You guys know who Bomac is? Bomac is the uh, trainer slash manager of Bud Crawford. Bud Crawford, arguably one of the best boxers on the planet. And uh, that's that's the Spence Crawford one for the folks who... I know some of you who watch boxing are like, yes, we know this, Luke. But for folks who may not know, Crawford is the one half of the Spence Crawford. Bomac is the trainer. Bomac has trained a lot of guys, trained Jamel Herring and some other ones. He's, he's a big old fat dude. Um, he obviously knows a lot about boxing, but that instructional is not my favorite, if I can be honest. It's called The Art of the Jab. I was like, oh, man, Bomac's got an instructional on the jab? This will be great. It wasn't. It was not. So just a heads up on that. But, dude, just about every one I've purchased on there is good. I'm, I'm curious about the Teddy Atlas one. I'm curious about the Mike Tyson one. I'm curious about I do the Barry Robinson ones are really long. I haven't had a chance to sink my teeth into it. The one I'm watching right now, right now, I'm trying to get through. I think I have my notes up somewhere. I might be able to show you at some point. But um, is the new Danaher standing to ground one. So takedowns, but for submission grappling which obviously is not quite like wrestling, not quite like judo, and even then not quite like MMA. It's sort of its own little world. But uh, there's just a lot of really interesting stuff in there. And Danaher, um, man, I'll just say it. Danaher's better than any other jiu-jitsu teacher I've ever had. I've had some good ones too. I've had some good ones. But in terms of teaching you subject matter, everything is aligned in this. Everything is... Um, there's an entire system in play, which a lot of folks have, but the way in which it's all categorized is very simple to understand. And I think appropriate categorization and then appropriate breakouts within the categorization. And then when he explains something to you, he is very good about just about making sure what you understand the key central insight detail or principle involved that you have to understand when in these scenarios. And when I say jujitsu teacher, I've, I've never trained in person with Dan or her. What I mean to say is like anyone who I've heard from teach jujitsu. So I shouldn't call him my teacher in that sense, but you get the, he, he is so good at it. He often feels like your teacher, but just to clarify that, um, he has this very clear, understandable, well-constructed system and inside of that are these, and you can tell he's done a lot of thinking about this because he has distilled what is important and what is not important. And he doesn't explain to you, sometimes he'll explain to you about like what things are in terms of where you need to be for positions. Like, hey, their hand needs to be placed here. Your hand needs to be placed here. Yes, it's a lot of that. But underpinning all of it is this entire system grounded in principles of interaction grounded by a conceptual understanding about what makes this all work. And I've seen some good ones. I've seen some good teachers out there, but they always did some piece of this really well or two pieces of it really well. He can take the granular quite well into the contextual quite well, into the parts of the system quite well, 
and then in that system make the system itself quite good. Every piece of the ladder of understanding what is something, why is it something, and where does it fit, and what principles are involved, all of that, everything is very neatly ordered and thoroughly understood by virtue of, I think, competition experience or other things. Um, and obviously, time spent on the mat and whatever else he has done. A lifetime of martial arts, really. I can't recommend. Uh, he's got other stuff, too. Uh, he's got, like, the back attack system. But I'm doing the one called Standing to Ground right now. And it's a revelation. It's a revelation. Someone says, uh, Craig Jones and Ryan Hall and James Krause. Oh, I have James Krause's um, tutorial on fence wrestling. It's pretty good. He jumps through stuff quickly. So you have to kind of go back and watch a couple times, but it's very good information. Ryan Hall, I think, has his own system. In fact, I think I have his half guard system. Uh, I've not seen any of the Craig Jones stuff. Couldn't speak to it. We'll do a few more of these. Um, let's see. Let's answer this one. It's an interesting question. All right, Luke. Uh, I love the new Doc series talking about MK. I had some thoughts and wanted your take on it. In Doc series, there is a line that you are very much the numbers man and BC is focused on great content. Let me explain something to you. That is very much oversold. It is true. It is true that I care more about the numbers than he does and I pay more attention to them than he does. That is true. But this idea that like what all he cares about is content and all I care about is numbers is very much untrue. Okay, let's continue. Uh, let's see. In an interview, Mr. Beast, probably the biggest YouTuber, says that at this stage, he never looks at the numbers and analytics. Yeah, why would he? Everything does a fucking gazillion views every time. He only has one objective while making videos, and that is to make the best video possible. I feel that part of the reason the show is great is because of the combination of you two. Mostly BC says the most random, irrelevant, and stupid shit. I still feel he truly does try to make it the best show. I agree. And will make the show better in the long run. Because there are a few times that I have come for the LT but stayed for the BC. Fine. That's okay with me. He just needs some new punchlines because now everyone knows that. Okay. Da -da 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 -da. How is it this year? Yeah, Showtime loves us. Um, just had a meeting with them. So everything is good with Showtime. But let me just be clear about this. This, this contrast, not so much between me and BC, but this contrast between numbers and um um quality there is not necessarily inherent tension from them all the time right and i will do videos that i think are high quality that i know won't necessarily get a lot of views like for example the last one i did on Mackenzie dern i saw some asshole commented being like oh the videos have been gone for so long and he finally comes back and it's on Mackenzie dern well yeah dumbass she's the one who just fought also you know, I didn't see anyone else connect the dots about the posture that she occupies and the position that she occupies on the ground that essentially sublimates her sub, her ground and pound game to what she thinks is to facilitate her submission game, but it ends up undercutting the whole thing. And of course, I went through the whole detail about how she's high on the back because she wants to be near the shoulder girdle to capture an arm or for go to for strangulation. But because of that, she has to balance on her head and is not a mechanically efficient position from which to punch. It does do a good job of keeping their opponent face down. It keeps their balance down and it keeps their uh, they can't get their posture up. That's not nothing. It's it, It'll win you the round for sure. She also doesn't take them off of their base. She does not achieve mechanically advantageous 
positions for punching. Did no one else? I didn't see a single fucking person put all that together. So, you know, not that I, it's a genius inside, but it's just that was the homework that I had done. That was something I was interested in. The numbers kind of clued me on it. So I wanted to do it. And that, that, to me, that is a high quality, not so much like a presentation from uh, production. Um, the cable management was a disaster. But in terms of like the information, I consider that high quality. Um, some of the stuff I've done on fighter pay over the years has been high quality that did poorly or um, I've interviewed guys. I uh, one time had Ben Askren and John Fitch in studio to talk about the Ali act. This was once upon a time when I worked early, early, early on for Sirius XM. So like, you know, there's a case to be doing those kinds of things. But I would also submit to you that if you it's a trap either way, where if you get into the mindset of, well, we just need our numbers and you're not really thinking about curating the content. With our, there's not enough quality control that goes all the way through. I don't think you'll build the kind of audience in size or, frankly, in quality that you want. Conversely, if you are focused on quality as the only determinant factor, unless you are Mr. Beast and you have amassed this enormous audience, if you're still in the audience building phase, which I would still very much say is true for us, then certainly quality matters every time you hit record and every time you hit publish. But you also must have a greater sense of what is the audience looking for, what matters to them, what doesn't matter to them, what works for them, what are they happy about, what are they not happy about. I mean, to that point, if we were only concerned about what the audience cared about, we probably wouldn't talk about boxing anymore. They're not super interested in it, but we are. And we actually feel like it is a more interesting show by virtue of our ability to play these levels. There is you know, clearly disagreement between us and the audience on that, but that's just how we feel. Um, and I don't think we've, by the way, anyway, like done with the job of quality control, even on the stuff that we've done, like the last Nate Diaz resume review, where we were trying to up the quality. And as a consequence, I think some of the numbers went up by virtue of it, right? Because we went and found screenshots or photos to help tell the story while we had done it. BC and I had a bunch of meetings about which fights we want to talk about. What's the central insight here? What's the central detail? What photos do we want to grab that tell the story? Like cowboy flipping off Nate before the uh, beginning of the fight, right? And then Nate flipping him off and then Cowboy kind of being like, hey, at the end of it, you know? Like, these were all conscious decisions that we made. So in either way, you want to make sure that you have enough, I think, um, representation of both those, I want to say, the principle of audience growth and then the principle of quality control. But I would humbly submit to you in the stage where we're in, where we have 120 some odd thousand subscribers, that's not nothing. But to me, unless you're at like a million or two or five or seven million subs, you know, not having an appreciation for what the audience wants to do on some kind of consistent level, you know, you're not going to grow. You're not going to grow. So that's that. That's my position there. All right. Let's see what you guys got. If you have any questions or if you have any paid questions, we'll get to them now. If you don't, it's fine. If you do, I'll get to him here. I think Othello's on. Yes, he is. All right, let's see. Let's see what you got. And by the way, thanks to everyone who does this. I greatly appreciate it. You guys are the best. All right, with that in mind, let's go. Mark asks, as a fairly serious MMA journalist, I am none of those things. Do you find that having opportunities to speak with guys like Rogan, Nash, Bronstetter, and Mindenhall helps to balance out the MMA grab ass <laughs> you play with BC three times per week on MK? I can't tell if MK fans hate it or love it. Very funny. What I would say is, as much as I love doing MK, and I hope I do it for many years to come, it it's not everything that I want to do, like video breakdown stuff. And I know that was part of Dissected, but 
ran into some complications there. Um, yeah, I love doing super serious stuff. Now, I don't know if BC loves it as much in the way that I do. That's not entirely true because there are serious stuff that he likes doing as well, but there's room for all of it. There's room for all of it. All right. If TJ wins the 135 strap for the third time, where would that achievement rank all time? It probably puts him as best bantamweight ever, to be honest with you. Probably does, to be just quite fair. Um, this is something we talk about on the pregame preview with Chuck. We have talk about this very topic. I think if you do that over the course of the number of years, you know, and I know that like, well, he's got the PED thing. You all know how I feel about it, but I recognize there's a debate about it. I, I think it certainly puts him in the conversation for best bantamweight ever. Yeah, is the way I put that. Luke, do you, I hear someone squatting. Luke, do you think Charles is being overlooked and disrespected? No. Feels like no one is giving him a chance. I don't see that as true at fucking all. Let's look at this for a second. In fact, I would argue it is the exact fucking opposite. I don't know what y'all are talking about. Let's look at this, shall we? Let me take this off the screen for just a second. So, first of all, this is not like some huge demonstration of commitment. One way or the other. Let's look at these odds. So here are your odds. They've got Islam in these places as a very, very slight favorite. And by the way, we still have time. This line could continuously shift. It's not like they made Islam some giant favorite. I know what your point is. Well, Charles is not the champ, but we know we all kind of consider him the champ. And Islam doesn't have any elite wins. Isn't this bullshit? Part of these lines are just designed to induce betting. They're not by itself the ultimate arbiter of who is and isn't you know or how uh, even the, the the disparity in the line that doesn't necessarily tell you how much you know in the real world they're actually are far apart in ability but I'm just trying to point out here it wasn't like they did some scandalous something scan i mean i guess if you i guess you could argue that making Oliveira the underdog is scandalous i wouldn't really agree with that i think there are some ways in which that Oliveira potentially matches up with him that makes that a, a reasonable conclusion but they didn't do him dirty in that particular way. But more to the point, I have to tell you, I get the vast majority of the questions or the think people in my mentions, there is this argument going around that Charles is disrespected. And I will tell you that to this point, remember something about Charles Oliveira. Has there been some previous and a little bit of enduring skepticism about him? Yes. Why? Well, I showed you, he has eight losses in the UFC and seven of them, he got finished. He got finished. He got his lights put out with punches. He got submitted, you name it. Okay. So there is this obvious recognition about some of his limits. And as a consequence of that, he is not like Habib and not like John Jones, where once they got going, it was very clear they were inevitable. They were. It was inevitable that Habib was going to win the title. It was inevitable to anyone paying attention that John Jones was going to win the title. I know some folks thought Bader was going to stop them or Shogun Hua. I wasn't one of them. He was inevitable, right? There was no way they were not going to claim the title. Charles Oliveira has never been inevitable. That explains, I think, some of the previous, and to an extent, 
some of the much less enduring skepticism because you're like, okay, you're this new guy now, but how much did you really depart from the old guy? That's just sort of a natural human inclination to view things that way, right? So that's part of it. However, the worm has turned a little bit in this whole debate, and now there's a little bit of a complex among his supporters that seem to suggest they think that no one is giving him any credit ever. That like, isn't this really about Charles against the world? Dude, if you get finished fucking seven out of eight times in a loss, yeah, there's going to be some skepticism about you. Why is that a scandal? Well, it hasn't happened since 2017. Okay. I mean, that's a hell of a run, man. That's a hell of a run. But now you're in the deepest end of the pool. And by the way, Chandler nearly finished him, right? You know, Gaethje hurt him a couple times. It's not like he's been invincible in these performances either. Guys, it would be irrational to not have at least some skepticism about Charles Oliveira. On the other side, there is also plenty of room to have a lot of faith in his abilities because what he has turned into is an absolute demolition man. And he can do it in the clinch, he can do it at distance, and he can do it obviously with his jiu-jitsu in any kind of ground context. He has become a formidable opponent, should be the champion, in my mind, kind of is, and I would say, as of the time of this recording, is the best lightweight in the world. Guys, he is phenomenal. But I don't know why, A, skepticism of him is some kind of disreputable or unfair thing, uh, and B... You know, this, he's in a very difficult situation in his career in terms of who he has to fight every fucking time. And he has not looked invincible in every time doing that. He has been perseverant at times. He's been dominant. Other, He was dominant against Tony. But, you know, against Chandler, dude, that was the precipice of, of defeat. The precipice of defeat. So I, I, would, I would submit to you, I understand why some people also, by the way, have skepticism of islam it's like well dude who the fuck has he fought that's even remotely on charles's level that he's just bossed around it doesn't exist doesn't exist there's no one there you could point to that's like that tago moises no dan hooker no bobby green no those are great fighters i have a lot of respect for all three they're not on the fucking Oliveira level they're just not so you know let's calm down here a little bit this weird reverse psychology thing that's happening where it's like oh charles doesn't get any credit dude charles gets a shit ton of credit the skepticism about him, depending on how it's articulated, oh, he's a flake, he's a quitter. That's not fair. Now, that's totally unfair at this point, certainly. But being like, I don't know about a guy who used to lose a lot, yes, who is significantly better, but even in these fights, is still getting hurt at certain times. He has a risky style in a lot of ways. By the way, his vision is poor. You know, he can't see for shit. Like, you're supposed to have skepticism about that guy, at least some rational version of it. All right. Uh, Luke, what are your thoughts on the Kanye situation, how the alt-right, is that still a term? Has been using his mental demise to get viewership. I don't think, the, um, I don't know if they're using his mental demise so much as his celebrity. Uh, you have to imagine, like, f one thing that's changed from when I was a kid to now is that there were some right-wing, um, you know, sort of openly right-wing uh, pop culture stars, but, like, the vast majority of, like, movie stars and musicians and things like that, certainly when I was a kid, let's say through my, my you know, let's say 22, 25, something like that, they they most almost always identified as left-leaning in some kind of way, for better or for worse, right? 
And there's been a, something of a shift in that, but there's been this long standing, like, have you ever noticed like the right is always trying to, and I'll say this pejoratively, I really don't like in the eighties and nineties, one thing they wanted to do was like, Oh, you don't like the Washington post. Let's set up the Washington times as this alternative to it. Um, for example, yes, part of it is because they get kicked off, but if you don't like Twitter, here's gab. If you don't like YouTube, here's rumble. They're always trying to build these like alternative sources because their purchase on the mainstream version of them is always embattled or challenged or they have some sense that it's not accessible to them and sometimes they're right right sometimes they're right many times they're right um but the point i'm trying to make is when they can get someone from this untouchable world of celebrity music and fame who is quite clearly you know there's no denying kanye's level of celebrity right it's very very high a list and and then some um, to get a guy like that to give, especially because, you know, he's African-American and that doesn't really cohere with um, a lot of the more mainstream right-wing stars. That's There's not many of them that look and sound like Kanye in that way. And so he is valuable to them for that purpose, which is not surprising. It's just that, did you guys see the Vice? I don't read Vice often. Almost never, as a matter of fact, but I did see this. Uh, Vice got the uncut like uh, cl- uh the uncut full video of kanye talking to tucker and then tucker aired the video he cut out all kinds of like super anti-semitic shit that kanye had said in the course of that you know so it's like um i don't mind that the guy has a set of views that don't align with you know let's say the oppressive when i say oppressive i mean like you know <laughs> I know some folks in MMA think they're like, I'm crazy right, or left wing. And it's like, I just find that fucking hilarious because I went into a bookstore here the other day. I won't say which one. And the books were so, I mean, so far to the identity politic left. I was like, there's nothing in this bookstore I can even fucking buy. I mean, I just can't even do anything here. You know, to challenge that group by getting Kanye to be on their side, I can understand that. But if you're willing to edit out obvious anti-Semitism, and I think the guy is just in general mentally unwell and has been unwell for some time, and they excuse that too. Like when you're running up on stage and grabbing shit from Taylor Swift, those are early. As someone who has dealt with family members who had graduating and slowly escalating versions of mental illness, by the time you notice it, it's been in motion for years and probably was in motion with their parents before them and even before them as well. Like, dude, mental illness is an absolute inheritance in your family. It is an absolute inheritance. And I have seen it up close. Trust me on that. So, um, you know, he's not well. He's not well. He is very, he is very talented. I will never say otherwise. He is very wealthy. Obviously, he is very famous. There's no denying it. The works of art he has done, I will not sit here and talk poorly about. But he's unwell. He's unwell. And they're willing to look the other way um, because having that access to that kind of celebrity has historically been something that has been denied to the right. Uh, what boxer's fight style would translate best to MMA? Um, Jerron Ennis, because he can do fucking anything in boxing. Switch, he can switch. So anyone being able to switch stance, um, anyone with a powerful jab, not just a probing jab or a range-finding jab, but someone who's got a power jab, he's got one. Um, someone who's got good footwork, 
Um, something like that. So I would say Jerron Ennis, but Jerron Ennis can do just about anything. So uh, Ian says, I love Documentary 7. MK needs more content like that. It's what makes the brand unique. I know, but it's they shot that over months and months, and it took weeks and weeks and weeks of editing. In terms of what you get, the investment, the return on investment is low. It's low. Also, can you elaborate on the two-hour show limit for MK? The bickering is boring, and MK isn't too long, in my opinion. Um, I wouldn't mind going over two hours if we had better segments, but I am of the firm belief that more is not more, um, less is more, typically. And two hours is more than enough time if you have done your homework and you have articulated articulated your points correctly but thoroughly you don't need to just spam the audience with extra time there should be a good reason why you occupy their time that way um that's my personal belief but i'm glad you liked i, I dude i thought documentary number 7 was great but it for the amount of work that goes into it and the amount of resources for the amount that you get out of it there's the trade off is not great it's just not great you know, is it going to beat my Gordon Ryan extra credit that I did? It's got, was that 34K right now? How long did that take me to make? You know, I understand the point. Like, you also want this to balance out some of that other stuff. I get it. But to my, my way of thinking about this is, okay, that's way too much work for way too little return. What's a different way we could still have high-quality content? What's another thing that we could try where we scratch this content itch that the fans want and that I think does set the brand apart, but isn't so laborious on, on all the other parts of the assembly process. Who are you favoring in Olivera versus Islam and why tune in next week to find out, but I appreciate your question. I, I, I got some stuff coming out about this. I just don't want to spoil all the work I've been doing to get to this point. So, uh, you talk uh, quite a bit about how important a fighter's development is to their career success. Can you talk about that a little bit and what fighters you think had an ideal development versus which ones were kind of botched? Conor McGregor had a very good development in Cage Warriors and UFC. Um, that's a great one. Uh, who had it botched? Sage Northcutts was a disaster. It was a complete disaster. They, they fucked that up to the, I don't know, he'll, I don't think he'll ever be the same. And I'm not like... Who on earth would benefit from taking shots at um, Sage Northcutt? I, I, I'm not doing that. I'm not attempting to do that. I don't even want to do that. I wouldn't get anything out of it if I tried. You know, but to a degree, you know, signing up for the UFC as early as he did, he 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 bears responsibility. So let's be clear about this. Like, it's not like Sage like was pulled from his bed and forced to go fight some guy, and you know, he doesn't have a role in this. He had agency in this as well. That's one problem. The other problem is I think UFC tried to matchmake around him, but in the end, they just couldn't do it. And then they sent him to one, and they really fucked up the matchmaking there, giving him Cosmo, Alessandre. Are you fucking kidding? And, dude, Alessandre may have ended his career. Like, I don't really know what's going to happen here. Like, that's a dire example of one, but it's too much too soon. It's always better, always better for long-term development even to go super slow, comically slow, than it is to go too fast. Too fast is the number one danger. It's the number one, it's the one thing that if you get it wrong, it, 
the consequences are dire. They are dire. I have seen it. I have seen it. What you want, it, you, you want it to be almost frustratingly slow. Now, the, that's not necessarily great either. The, the, the true answer is there's an appropriate level of um, progression through someone's technical development that has to happen in a corresponding and equal kind of way. Too slow is not great either. But would I take too slow over too fast any day of the fucking week? Any day of the week. All right. Gun to your head. You're watching Hasbulla's UFC debut now that he's actually signed a fight. I'm not sure how much I believe that, to be honest with you. Or Chael versus Tito, too. Yeah, Chael versus Tito, too. This is not... Guys, I got nothing against Hasbulla. If he's making money and he's got 15 minutes on the clock to make money, I hope he makes... And I mean this quite sincerely. Dude, life is hard. Life is hard. If he's got 15 minutes on the clock in the Andy Warhol sense to go make money, I hope he gets every fucking penny that he can. But I don't understand what the appeal is. What is someone actually say what the joke is? It's a guy who has some kind of developmental disability who everyone lets hit other people because there's a trade off there. So you can, like, at some point, I think you just have to accept everyone thinks they're laughing with him. And I don't really believe that. I think there's a little bit of, kind of wink wink we're also laughing at him too and i i'm just not with it it's not for me it's not for me but if he wants to do it certainly he is uh he can make his own life decisions and if he's gonna do it and i mean this truly i mean this i hope he gets fucking paid i hope he gets paid it's but i'm not the audience for it not even a little who do you think is the best five-round fighter in the sport my money is either yan or cheeto those would be my top two choices those guys are built for five rounds. Absolutely built for it. Come to, in fact, if they're not in five round fights and they're in tough fights, right? I mean, if they're matching overmatched guy or if they're fighting, excuse me, overmatched guys, this is not really relevant. But because you know they're just going to walk right over him anyway. But you can't actually understand Piotrion or Chito Vera without a five round fight. That's actually how you understand what they do really well. You have to see those things played out in that way. That's what they're good for. Um, those would be my top two by a million miles. Luke, I live near Tyson Fury and sometimes see him at my local buddy shop. What the fuck is that? What's a buddy shop? Is that like a c- cigarette joint? Is that like a they, some places where you go for ass play? I mean, I don't even know what that is. Have you ever lived near a fighter celeb or frequented a local spot that they did? Yeah. Yeah. If I ever lived near a celebrity, I live uh, near. Um, I oh, hold on. I worked at a place that Kevin Spacey liked to go to. I worked at an Irish bar in New York. He was there. I won't say super frequently, but regularly enough. Um, oh, I didn't even realize it for half the time. So there's one. Um, have I lived near another celebrity? I mean, I don't live in places that I mean, I've lived in cities where other celeb. like, I'm not going to tell you where in DC I live, but rest assured it ain't fucking Georgetown. Okay. You know, I have, (laughs) I, I work real hard and I try to make as much money as I can for my family, but I don't live in Georgetown. I, mm -mm, mm -mm, 
nope, I don't have that kind of money. Um, and when I was in New York, I lived in Manhattan, but I was broke as fuck. I mean, I've seen a lot of celebrities around. Um, I'm trying to think. In my neighborhood, anywhere. Um, I'm not going to say who it is. There is one member of the federal government that lives nearby who you all would know real well. Um, we're not buddies or anything, so I can't, you know, they're just there. Um, but that's it. That's it. But, you know, you live in a state like this, like do I, or in New York City, you live in D.C. or for political stuff. Do I see famous, I see famous people almost every day. Like, it's not hard. You just walk down to the hill. You'll see them, especially when Congress is in session. Um, You know, or you just go to, go to National Airport on a Friday. You'll see them. Very, very easy to find them. If UFC finally came to their senses and said they were going to put one of your tweets on the screen during a pay-per-view, what would you say? Yeah, they fucking hate me, I guess. I got told by someone high level that they don't... They Here's how it was explained to me. And this was relatively recently, uh, within the last year. The way it was explained to me was that they don't hate me, but that they definitely don't like me. Uh, which is fine. You know, it's... <laughs> it's like, you, you and my family. Um... But um, I don't give a shit. It doesn't do anything for... It, it, the people who get put on those things, it doesn't do anything for their subscriber count. You know what I mean? You know, and I realize that the, it's the UFC's way of not giving me any attention because I've been very critical of them through the years. But that's the job of media. The job of media, yes, at times, is to celebrate UFC. That can be true. When the UFC has done something worthy of celebration, that can be true. But, you know, this fucking moronic debate that's going on now all the time about... Well, I see it everywhere on Twitter. I have put up something about it everywhere being like, well, boxing is really just, you know, they just can't make the fights that fans want to see and, and happens all the time in MMA and UFC. And I'm always like, dude, do you hear the words coming out of your mouth? Do you hear yourself talk? What Do you think boxing is some kind of living organism that chooses to do things this way and that MMA is also a living organism? that chooses to do things. These things happen for a reason. So let's talk about it for a second. What is that reason? What is the reason? And that you're going to get, and when you, when you do this with people who don't know what the fuck they are talking about, you'll get any number of just the dumbest responses. Shit like, you know, guys that ever may want it more, you know, <laughs> you know, they have, a, they, there is something to be said about at this point, having developed more of a culture, that's permissive of this kind of thing but in general that's just you know they want it more get the fuck out of here with this not they want it more do you hear yourself talking they want it more oh just because you know um they understand that they uh, they all have to sacrifice for the fans entertainment like they might have been they might have internalized that because that might have been propaganda fed to them but that's not the reason like there's things happen in life not by magic there's no wizard, you know, snapping a fingers or waving a wand that's just making shit happen. Like, or because you like MMA, everything about it just naturally operates in a way that is more pleasing to you. I don't know why MMA the way is the way it is, but it just makes me happy. The reason why it makes you happy is because you cheer for Monopoly. 
That's why. That, that is essentially the answer. Your interests don't always, as a consumer, don't always align with the promoter, but they align more with the promoter than the fighter. So that's one sort of common problem here. But the basic issue is very simple. In boxing, the athletes have significantly more uh, market power and structural forces in play. For example, the their sanctioning bodies, they own the titles, not the promoter. And they don't have the same kind of onerous contracts that you see in the UFC, which has roughly 80 to 90% of the world's elite talent, and they've got them all under very, very uh, strong contractual holds. That is your explanation. It is not motherfucking magic. There is your answer. It's not because MMA is just better or boxing just can't figure it out. And the reality is this, man. I'm not even telling you that like boxing is not fucked up. It's fucked up in all kinds of ways. It's fucked up in all kinds of ways. And the sanctioning bodies beyond just the UFC contracts, like they've got a lot to answer for. Even if the UFC went away tomorrow, you know, which certainly no one's asking for, but if it did, and just, you know, it's a theoretical situation and boxing still just had to figure out its own problems independent of any other combat sport and doing what they're doing, you know, the sanctioning bodies have a lot to answer for. They're, they're, they're lot, the promoters not wanting to work with one another, they have a lot to answer for. There are plenty of good criticisms to make of boxing but the one thing i really hope everyone understands and i said this on mk yesterday i just want to repeat it here one more time and i'll move on i promise it is this nobody as a consumer wants to pay an additional tax to be a fan of a combat sport but i think if you actually if you really say you care about the fighters and what they have to sacrifice and what they're paid but when i say sacrifice i mean like brain trauma any number of other challenges that that occupation demands of them, then what you must be willing to say is that they should have fairer ability to dictate the terms of their own career. That won't mean, getting back to the previous point that I made, that will naturally align with the consumer interest. That is a cost that we all have to pay if you like and enjoy and watch boxing. That's true. It's a fair criticism. But that's part of the cost as a fan that you're being asked to paid for a, I would argue, a much more equitable product. Now, you can like MMA fighting better than boxing as just a general sport, and I do, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But all this bullshit, bullshit about how without any specification, MMA's just figured it out. And boxing can't get its act together. These are just people cheerleading Monopoly. That's it. And they don't even realize they're doing that because they haven't thought about what are the mechanisms in real life that enable these different outcomes. Once you begin to unpack what the different mechanisms are that create these different outcomes, you can still like what you like but at least be honest about the forces in play. Have you seen Hamzat's latest IG post? No, where he's getting teed off on by Kadyrov's sons. To what extent is his life and career, or whatever, forcefully tied to them? It's impossible to know. It is impossible to know, but it's it's just, you know, is he doing it because he agrees with them? Maybe. Is he doing it because he has to ritually humiliate himself? for Kadyrov's favor to, you know, not have his family killed, maybe. 
Is he doing it because, you know, some other fucking reason? Who knows? No one in MMA media who has access to him ever seems to ask him about it, so it's just hard to say. And even then, what would he say? Even then, what would he say? Uh, quick merch idea, which I'm sure someone has brought up before. We all need washed up POS. Need a MK cannabis glass ceramic pipe. Ooh, that's a good idea. Tell BC to take some sport activity for fuck's sake. I'll do that. That's actually not a bad idea. Uh, where will the Char- Charles Islam winner be ranked pound for pound? Ooh, let's good question. Let's pull up the rankings here. Let's see. Let's see. Right here. There's pound for pound. So where do we have either of them now? Charles sitting at three. It's going to be hard for Charles to pass Izzy, who's undefeated. Um, and if Islam, Islam will just even make it onto the fucking list. But Charles, I don't think he'd take over number one. Possible he could take two. I think he probably stays where he is. Probably. Probably. Uh, advice for transitioning away from training. My body is trashed from 22 years of collegiate wrestling, BJJ. Having an identity crisis, leaving the gym. I would say the thing that has been fun for me is... Um, I've all I've been trying at first what I was trying to do was lift hypertrophy like you know let's all get let's go to the gym and get the biggest muscles and then at 42 43 at this point it's just not really possible not without drugs I don't think not for me anyway but I found that I was really interested in learning about not like touch butt in the park you know what was his name the Portuguese guy that um Connor hired although there's some value to that uh, Portal Ido Portal but through weights through resistance training I found I was became really interested in movement quality and you can do that in all different kinds of gyms with trainers, online communities. Um, by the way, you don't have to give up training completely unless it's really fucking bad for you. You could get into a coaching role. You could dial back the number of times you roll, dial back the number of times you train, take on an advisory capacity. I will say that the one thing I do miss about training is the community. That's the hard part for me. It's the real hard part. The community was a big, big, big part of everything. And um, losing that has been very difficult. Um, these are people who I consider my friends who I just haven't seen as much. For I've seen a little bit of them, but not much. Um, but honestly, I found that having other hobbies, having other interests, having other communities to go to, but also just finding different ways to be interested in the act of fitness, I found that learning movement patterns um and resistance training through movement has been like i have to go to school for this again i have to learn for this again it's not the same as the communal relationship you get through martial arts training but it has been surprisingly satisfying your favorite vape and energy drink i gotta tell you this is my favorite vape this is the one i have now it's fucking amazing i got i mean i vape too much like a white trash piece of shit but this elf bar watermelon ice this is the one uh charges in the back like that elf bar it's an unbelievably good one insofar as vapes are any good uh favorite energy drink has got to be rain i'm gonna say creamsicle orange creamsicle rain art like as in like the rain of you know terror um it's dude bang sucks monster not my favorite. Not nearly as strong. I like some monster stuff, but rain energy drink. 
I would kill a person for that. All right, look, among casual sports fans, if McGregor is the most well-known active MMA fighter, who would be second? John Jones, Patty, something like that? Um, yeah, Izzy, yeah, maybe. Has UFC refusal to leverage its stars as brand names hurt the product? Not really. It's hurt the fighter's ability. Well, I mean, you know, it's not like they're not promoting these guys, but the, I think their question is the, because there's this, this general orientation towards the overall brand, has that made some of their fighters not as big of stars as they could be? Sure. That's been an enduring challenge for them, but um, um, I don't think it's actually hurt their core business, no. Uh, whatever happened to Jordan Breen? So my understanding is I, I talked to someone else in the industry about this recently-ish. I'm not exactly sure of the terms of the circumstance, but I believe he had to, well, I don't want to blow up his business, but um, it's not my place to say. My understanding is he's doing okay. Um, I don't know what it would take at this point to get him back into the industry. Um, I don't know if he even wants to. I haven't spoken to him in so long. But if you guys missed out on Jordan Breen, boy, you want to talk about somebody good in media who would keep you on your fucking toes. Jordan Breen was that guy. He made me better because you have to be better to be around someone who is that knowledgeable. You know, um, I don't want to blow. It's not for me to give up his information. Rest assured that from what I understand, he is in a you know reasonably good place. And um, he is in Canada, as I understand. Still in Canada. Didn't come here or anything. But um, yeah, he's no really lo- no longer really actively working in the industry, from what I can tell. All right, boxing matchmakers, boxing excuse me, boxing match makes better for prospects and their development than the than MMA and specifically the UFC. Yes, but they do. When you say that boxing is just all of the sport, UFC is just the high end. What should the UFC use to better develop prospects? Stop fucking signing them. <laughs> Like this dude, Raul Rosas Jr., like everyone's like, oh, I saw a future champion. Word? I didn't. He might still become one, but I didn't see anything that night that told me that. That seems fucking insane. You know, signing a guy who's 17. Let me. Listen. And this is me talking about me and other people I know. I don't know Raul Rosas. I can't speak about him. But the vast majority of 17-year-olds, including bright ones that went to Ivy League and all this stuff, they're fucking idiots. And the world in which you live, it makes success and fame and wealth seem far more accessible than it actually is. Let me tell you, I've taken the Pepsi challenge on trying to access some of these things. I've had very modest success doing it. It is maybe because I'm just not talented enough or whatever it was. Certainly isn't a, uh, a, a, um, an effort issue. I can very much tell you it's not an effort issue. And I think any kind of 17-year-old, you know, listen, I, LeBron was 17 at one point and was destined for the league. It's not true that everyone who's that age is totally out of their mind. But I would argue, like, you're already in a sport where most of these guys think that they're going to metaphorically win the lottery. Almost none of them will. So that means by definition, 99% of them are wrong. And now on top of that, you've got someone at 17 who thinks like I'm going to be champion in two to three years. I think that is, that sounds to me like a 17 year old talking. That's what that sounds like, you know, 
who's to say i i can't predict the future if i'm wrong i will happily come up here and be like well he is the next lebron in mma and that's fine that's just what it will be you know won't be the first time i'm wrong certainly won't be the last but 17 year olds and people who have really not ever it's not like he hasn't had a hard life but what i mean is people through adulthood really chasing through professional ambition you have to eat shit first before i think you really begin to see like what is actually accessible for me what is doable here um and in the sport like that where getting that process of graduation wrong can be cataclysmic you know everyone wants to be in ufc i understand that that's where the vast majority of the money is in the sport you will fuck yourself up by going there too early you will you will you will do terrible things to yourself this person says showing the love thank you sir i appreciate it uh someone says luke is your opinion is drilling a limited system of high yield techniques better for combat than actually learning an art out and out uh it's the old gordon ryan uh system you have to be good at everything but you need to have one or two things where you're better than the competition all of them and that's how you win I don't know that this particular way in which you have framed it is the way in which I would look at it, but this is that's the general um, proposition. Someone says, I think we love BC 75 to 85%. We do love having you swat him down. Thanks for all you do. Loyal Donk since day one. Well, thank you, sir. Yeah, I mean, listen, we're all just doing jokes. Like, I love BC. That's something that folks don't realize. Is like, you will stop being mean to him. I'm like, that's the bit. It's not real. It's not real. Uh, okay. I know about TJ's PED use, but everyone takes something. Kamaru isn't that way at 35 because of genetics, and Bilal isn't that way because of prayers and fasts. Well, I don't have any information about their particular makeup or what they're doing, but I also want to be very clear about this. I don't give a fuck. Um, I can't go on another rant, and I won't, but anybody popping, anyone, anyone. Someone once said, well, what about St. Pierre? What if he popped? Would that have been surprising to you? No. Why would it why would it be surprising? Because he's cultivated an image in the public of being well liked. Who gives a shit? What's that supposed to mean? It's got nothing to do with why people use. It's got nothing. In fact, sometimes in other cases, again, I'm not saying it's about St. Pierre, but in other cases, they can be uh cover so that like media don't look into them at all. Like nothing nothing would surprise me. Boxing, privates or GRP class. Um, you should go 98% class every once in a while, do a private, you should go to class, go to class. Can Izzy be a boxing champ at 175? Like fucking better beef and Bivol's weight class. I doubt it. Doubt it. And then 200. No. Rings of power is crap. And the showrunners are conceited little people. They were blaming the audience for not liking their wares. Haven't seen one episode. <laughs> Let me tell you what I do at night. If it's my turn to put my daughter to sleep, which tonight it is, I'll put her down around 7.30-ish, give or take. And then when that's done, I come down here and I do homework until I go to bed. That's my evening. Every once in a while, I'll watch something with my wife or something like that, but I, I come down here and do homework. That's what I do. I don't 
you know, there's not a TV show. I tried watching Andor, and it was not that I mean, I can't say that it wasn't that good. I didn't finish it enough to know whether it's good or not, but it couldn't hold me. All right, you mentioned Olive's eyesight as a point of skepticism. Charles says he got eye surgery earlier this year. Does that change your view of Charles Islam? Slightly, slightly. Um, yes, a little bit, but not much, not much. It's still, the major issues in play are still there. The shipping address. Fuck, they keep asking me about this. Okay, I'm going to make a note about this. Othello, who's watching this. Othello, let's get a graphic for next week. We can put a shipping address on the screen. We still have one in that office. I have one last month on there before it's over. Um, I, I still can get mail there. I will do it. I will do it. Othello is watching this right now. I know he's going to text me. I will do it for next week. I'll put the graphic up at the beginning of the. You guys have asked me this a million times. I'm very sorry. I will get that up. Uh, do a fan meetups for coffee, please. Yeah, but it would be one with with like a bunch of people, not like one on one, because that's weird. I'm not doing that. Uh, the end does not look good for Bigfoot Silva. No, it does not. Are you worried about World War Three every fucking day? <laughs> every day. It's like, I don't, I, this is all bad. This is all bad. This is all bad. All bad. I mean, the Ukrainians are resolute that they want their freedom. Um, and you can understand why. The Russians have committed to what can only be described as cataclysmically poor decision-making about what to do. It has weakened them. It has weakened their military, and it has put them in a corner where they are now up against nothing but bad to worse decisions, potentially even worse ones than that. The Americans are just sending bombs and weapons and ammunition into Ukraine. I'm sure that won't come back to haunt the European continent at some point. Uh, and, you know, you've got Putin out there sort of threatening to use tactical nuclear weapons and potentially worse. Meanwhile, he's getting his bridges blown up. Do you guys know the significance of that bridge that was blown up, the one that connected Crimea um, to Russia that didn't exist before? It was supposed to be this major pro project. I think they got started in, or maybe it debuted in 2018. But um, it was supposed to be this, like, larger than – it was supposed to be this crowning achievement of connecting the Crimean Peninsula to Russia because before everything had to be either airlifted in or by boat. And it wasn't just that it solved that shipping uh, and supply line issue, but that it was the symbolic, you know, joining of the lands. And then for them to go and blow that shit up was not awesome. You could tell for him, them anyway. So the question is like, you know, how do we get out of this? Well, as long as the Ukrainians are saying that, you know, anything other than Russian retreat is acceptable and the Russians are saying anything other than taking these territories, which we have claimed is acceptable, is unacceptable. Uh, and the U.S. continues to just fund weapons to ratchet up the scenario. Yeah, it's all bad. It's all bad. It's all fucking bad. Mm -hmm. I read articles about it a lot, and every time they terrify me. There was a file that they found um, from the inside the Kremlin that did a... I think I talked about this, where they had discovered that the Russians have um, military... From a military standpoint, essentially, the Russians find nuclear volley an acceptable risk, an acceptable trade. Yeah, um, I'm terrified of it, but what the fuck can I do, you know? Haircut fun. Thank you, Hota. Uh, do you remember when Alan Belcher beat Husamor Palharis on the ground? Yes. I feel, I, fell, I feel like this fight doesn't get remembered enough. 
only people remember uh, Belcher for that awesome Johnny Cash tattoo. Yes, they don't really talk. He he dismantled Paul, Paul Harris in a way that really no one had before. Um, and he did it by basically out defensively grappling Paul Harris. And then once he did, Paul Harris melted and 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 Belcher beat the fuck out of him. And then last but not least, for the college fund for the little one. Thank you, Stefan. Appreciate it. Okay. Um, that is it for me. Almost two hours. Long time. All right. So thumbs up on the video as is customary. This video will be up, or excuse me, the podcast will be up tonight. Be on the lookout for Sunday morning-ish, somewhere along those lines, for some 280 previews. I think that you're going to like, and that's it for me. You got anything for me else? Or anything else for me? Excuse me. LukeThomasNews at gmail.com, and I'm out of here. So until next time, stay frosty. Y'all. Bump, bada, bump, bump.